Let's face it, whether you're hiring or trying to find work today, the process has become tougher than ever. Between ghost listings, AI-powered applicant tracking systems, chat GPT-written cover letters, and wild employment scams, how do you know if your resume, your application, or your job posting is even being seen by an actual human? That's why we've relaunched our job board to help you find your next opportunity. And if you're a company that's hiring right now, then we'll feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of podcast listeners for just $99. Get started with us and expand your job search or your recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts BFA Design and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. But in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Brandon Collins. Brandon is an interdisciplinary designer in Atlanta, Georgia, and is the founder of The Young Never Sleep. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Brandon Collins. I am an interdisciplinary queer designer, artist, inventor, archivist, and uh, performer from Atlanta, Georgia. Nice. How has uh, 2023 been going for you? It's been pretty good. I moved back from Atlanta to Atlanta from Los Angeles. It'll be about two years ago now. So over that, the course of those couple of years, I've just been kind of adjusting to being back here, being around old friends and reconnecting with people and sort of trying to reestablish myself mm. in my practice here, which has been a journey. But I've been able to kind of kickstart a lot of new projects that I'm really, really excited about. So 
it's been a whirlwind, but it's been overall positive and really like nurturing, nourishing experience so far. The year has been pretty good. Nice. Yeah. What's been like the biggest thing you've had to adjust to? Not being close to the ocean. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> that's definitely the biggest thing for sure. Yeah. Um, everything else is, you know, it comes with being in Atlanta versus L.A., just typical stuff. But that's definitely been the biggest adjustment. I mean, the traffic in Atlanta is pretty bad, too, but the traffic in L.A. is is on par, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. It's a toss up. You'd be hard pressed to say which one is, is worse, to be honest. The infrastructure in Atlanta isn't definitely isn't built for as many cars as we have coming into the city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even in L.A., I think a city that that was built for that is still a challenge. So being here is definitely like pretty hardcore. <laughs> Well, you talked about like reestablishing yourself and working with some projects. Mm -hmm. Like, can you talk about what some of those are? Like, is there anything that you want to try to do before the year ends? So, yeah, a few things. I am working with a longtime collaborator and friend, Ami Sweki, who runs a creative studio called Zoo as Zoo. Her and I are working to build a platform called You, which is essentially at this stage like a mind mapping tool to help people of all kinds, but specifically new media artists and creative technologists to help them just like organize their digital life, so to speak, all in one place and sort of in that way, help them sort of make new connections and curate their ideas towards the development of new projects and, and new types of technology. So that's one of the bigger things that I'm working on. I'm opening a bar <laughs> with a good friend of mine, longtime friend, Omar Ferrer. It's called El Mala. And it's going to be a really beautiful place and definitely a practice in world building for him and I and the whole team, which I'm working on Zoo with that as well. I'm really excited about that, about having our own space to, to have fun <laughs> and enjoy. I'm working on XR Radio with Amiko, Sharon O, uh, who runs her own studio, Polyvisuals. We're essentially just trying to craft a story a narrative about mixed reality and about identity and kind of through the lens of all of these technologies that all of us are sort of keeping our finger on the pulse about artificial intelligence and AR and VR and simulation and all these different things, kind of asking the question, like, what does it look like to exist in a world where all these technologies are integrated with one another and having to navigate that? Mm -hmm. Sort of the, the way that we're approaching it as with all of my work, is really from an anthropological perspective. And I think recognizing that the, the tools themselves, the channels are new, the devices are new, but the questions and the challenges aren't really that new. When you think about how we all navigate the world with the identities that have been in large part bestowed upon us, mm -hmm. we have to constantly encounter manipulation and questionable realities and alternative facts <laughs> and all of these things. Um, we've had to do that for a really, really long time. It's interesting to try to like kind of craft a story around that with those things in mind. Um, so those are some of the kind of the big ones that I'm working on um, and everything kind of like circles around all of the rest of my work, you know, which we'll talk about more. Yeah. So yeah, yeah you're doing just a few light projects, nothing major. Yeah, <laughs> just... <laughs> exactly. I heard about El Malo. I think I heard about it... I want to say maybe on it was one of these like blogs. It might have been Eater or oh, yeah, What's yeah. New Atlanta or Tomorrow News Atlanta, something like that. But I cool. think it's going to be in 
in Reynolds Town, I think. Yeah, it's at the dairies. Yeah, it's right in that little, not little, in that complex uh, yeah. next to the Eastern. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to check it out because I heard it's a rum bar and yep. I love rum. Yeah. So. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah, we'd love to have you, man. Yeah. I'll give you a membership. You know, we can just set it up. It'll be oh, a good time. well, thank you. Yeah, Got I appreciate you, yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your studio, The Young Never Sleep, uh, which yeah. you founded back in 2010. I'm looking at the website and um, it's described as a platform for visual experimentation through collaboration and interdisciplinary design services, which you kind of have spoken about already a little bit with some of the stuff you're mm-hmm. working on. Tell me more about the studio. Yeah. So I started that yeah in 2010. It was originally just the name of my blog on Tumblr. <laughs> I think I just like came up with that. Just, I think rooted in this, this idea of just like the restlessness that comes with like youth and with being just like insatiable in curiosity um, and that being kind of the driving force behind my work. So the name kind of stuck as a blog and then turned into the name I use for my creative practice. And yeah, I've been using it as a platform, a network, so to speak, to collaborate with other creatives, to expand our work, the possibilities of our work, kind of leaning on each other's strengths and then using it as a way to work with clients, with brands, large and small. And uh, over time, it's just continued to evolve and expand as a way to like explore my own identity and just like do like cultural research and archiving. And it's kind of ballooned into a much, much larger idea, <laughs> which is exciting, sometimes overwhelming, but it feels right. So I'm just, I'm still doing it now. What would you say kind of sets your studio apart from other studios? I would kind of parallel it with what I appreciate a lot about Zoo, uh, Zoo as Zoo, Ami's studio, is I think we approach it slightly different ways sometimes, but I think we both understand, I think, the impact and significance of not just creativity, but creative thinking. And the way I approach it is again, through the lens of like anthropology, science, um, nature, and this idea that creativity is something that's inherent to nature. And, you know, start talking about techno-culture. That's essentially what that kind of practice and philosophy is about, is that these things are rooted in nature. Like when you look out at nature, animals express creativity. They do architecture. Animals have languages and dialects. Animals create technology, they make tools, they have tool use and do mathematics and experimentation. And it's sort of like realigning ourselves with the fact that we are animals. (laughs) We're animals too. And that's like a thing to be an honor for us, that we're a part of this grand story of technology that doesn't just start with humankind. It actually just, it starts with the beginning of life itself. And that like, the creative endeavor is the same thing. It starts the story of creativity and creative expression goes back as far as time itself. And that, that to me is just, is a profound acknowledgement. It kind of drives the pursuit of the studio. And I have this, I like started using this banner, another world is possible many years ago, not knowing that it was an actual term in politics of alter globalization, which seeks to hold on to the positive aspects of globalization while sort of critiquing and if necessary discarding some of the negative aspects, which I found to be pretty perfect once I realized that that is what it actually was about. But it's really rooted in a world building practice and this idea that 
when we look out at nature, nature has all of these incredibly innovative solutions to so many complex problems. Mm-hmm. Using that logic, you know, it's quite simple that the world that we live in with all of its kind of multitudes of injustices is just one world. You know, it's one possible outcome based on things that we all should know about. <laughs> you know, we know why we arrived to this destination because our map was constructed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So if we start to retell the story and start to change the map, then the histories and the futures that are available look totally different. And that to me is exciting. And that's sort of the power and potential of creativity. You know, as you're talking about this, you're reminding me of an interview I did several years ago with Billy Allman. Uh, Mm -hmm. Billy Allman, he is a, an, He's an inventor also. He's an astrobiofuturist. Yes. And uh, a lot of the work he does is around biomimicry. Some of what he does kind of speaks to what you're talking about in that, you know, looking to the natural world on ways that we as humans can kind of live in this world or solutions, things like that. Like his premise is that like the natural world kind of has provided all the solutions that we need if we just look for them or look to them, I should say. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, uh, your studio is a collective, like you're working with partners, you're working with other collaborators too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always working with other people. As much as I'm doing independent work, I'm constantly working with other people. Most of the work that is shown on the website and on my Instagram is collaborative. And I try to stress that point that collaboration is, is really key in certain instances. And necessary to actually expand my capabilities and the capabilities of the people that I work with. So, yeah. And I'm looking at the site. I mean, you have a a very impressive list of clients and collaborators. I'll list off a few of them. I mean, Medium, HBO, Nickelodeon, Impossible Foods, and even some Atlanta clients. You know, I was saying before we recorded, I was like, I've seen your work before I knew that it was from (laughs) you. But like Bonton, which was this is, I think it's Bonton is still in Midtown. I was thinking yeah, of top floor for yeah. some reason, but Bonton is below top floor. Top floor is now something else. Yeah, yeah. But also you did a lot of work for Brittany Bosco. Yep. What are the best types of clients that you prefer to work with? All of those clients listed, I don't think I've listed any of my bad clients. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now that I think about it, that wasn't even intentional. I think I just did that. But all of those clients were great clients. I think that the best clients are the ones who see you for who you are and sort of are excited about just like applying your capability and letting you do your thing for the most part. They essentially hire you to do what they hired you to do, right? They they let you do what they hired you to do. They are collaborative. And those are the clients that I really appreciate. It doesn't mean that the work is without criticism and critique. I think the best clients also give good feedback and give a good critique. So it's a good balance of, you know, letting you do your thing and also making sure we achieve the goal together. Now, what are some of your plans for the Young Never Sleep in the future? I mean, you mentioned you and I'm looking and seeing that you've been working on something called Eugen. So I think this is all all sort of uh, combined together. What are kind of your plans that you want to achieve through the studio? I've been thinking about that a lot. It's a tricky knot to try to untangle. I think that the way I'm going with things 
is I think I would love to keep the studio running in its current form as like a practice that provides design services and offers a space for creatives to collaborate and express themselves. And as an extension of that, I think I want to push further and further into this world building space, essentially taking all of these stories that the Young Never Sleep has developed over the years and starting to realize them in multimedia formats. So things like gaming, mixed reality gaming, immersive interactive experiences, simulated environments, physical environments. Yeah, just like expanding those narratives and making them kind of bigger and more impactive and interactive. Now, it feels like you're doing this at a time when, I mean, I'd say it's just at a really good time because of everything that's going around with AR, VR, mixed reality. There's, of course, a lot of generative AI. I feel like AI has been put into everything or it's trying to be put into everything these days. Right. I recently had Carl Bogan on the show, who's the guy behind Mr. Giraffe, who does like these deep fake, these viral deep fake videos. And we had talked about cultivating media literacy. We talked about mm-hmm. like critical thinking to help people navigate what's synthetic media and what's real media or authentic media, I should say. I'd love to kind of get more of just your thoughts around all of this, like around what's been occurring with AI, how this feeds into kind of this definition of techno culture that you've come yeah. up with. Like I'm giving you the floor to, okay, cool. yeah. <laughs> to, to give your thoughts on all that. Yes. Yeah, so techno culture is a term that I started using, which was another one of those things that I later come to find out it's, it's actual an actual term in academia where the idea is to study and understand the relationship between technology and human society and how it sort of evolves over time, how they co-evolve and coexist together. I've taken that same kind of philosophy and practice and kind of expanded it further to just include like all of nature and recognizing that nature is in many ways inherently technological. When you look at evolutionary biology and the behavior of animal cultures, they have cultures, they have social organization Like I talked about before, they make tools, they make technologies and do science experiments of their own. And from that lens, understanding that, again, this technological outcome is just one, essentially, that can exist based on specific context. So the trajectories are really exponential when you look at, okay, what happens when this non-human animal is allowed to continue to evolve, for example, and their technological sort of paradigm starts to expand and evolve on its own. Like, what would that look like? Or even from a human perspective, like if said indigenous culture was able to thrive instead of being extinguished, what would our technologies look like today? Like, would they still be gray metal laptops that we stare into all day? Or would it be something totally different? And that's, a you know, an exciting thing that is usually taken on by science fiction. Mm-hmm. But the world we live in is, is a sci-fi <laughs> already. So it's... Yeah. It's exciting to just think about it that way and also to start putting those things into practice and start actually making these technologies, which is something I'm excited about. This, you know, endeavor of technoculture, part examination, part archiving, part practice and research and development. Underneath that is this vast body of research into the science of information, which has kind of connections to so many different things 
that helps kind of lay the foundation for, for that practice. Information science touches, you know, everything from quantum physics to the invention and evolution of language to how we organize information in our lives, how information is organized in nature and in art. It's super interdisciplinary. So I think that's why I kind of latched onto it. And when we start kind of connecting those things and you start talking about something like artificial intelligence and putting it into context, I don't actually like the term artificial intelligence. I think artificial kind of implies that it's not natural, which Mm -hmm. I don't completely agree with. And intelligence implies that it's intelligent, which intelligence is always a moving target, just like consciousness. Our idea of it continues to evolve as we learn more. And I think when you start asking questions about like what is artificial intelligence and you put it into the context of like anthropology, sociology, or evolutionary biology, you start sort of looking a bit deeper and looking at things like capitalism, for example, which I could I could place under the umbrella of artificial intelligence or white supremacy which I could put under the umbrella of artificial intelligence or patriarchy. These autonomous systems that operate on agents, you'd be hard pressed to say like who has the hand on the wheel in that scenario. You know, is it the system itself or is it the individual people? And the reality is it's both. It's like a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. So in that context, artificial intelligence more broadly is just about non-human intelligence, quote unquote. So you can look at animal culture And say, like, how do we define intelligence based on this? Like, here are obviously conscious beings who don't have a language like ours, who don't do things the way that we do, but they are intelligent in their own multifaceted ways. Mm -hmm. It starts to bring up questions about human intelligence. And if certain people are deemed disabled or neurodivergent or so on and so forth, like, is that accurate? Or do we need to think differently about it, you know, in the context of our society? So it just opens up a vast amount of questions. And I'm kind of excited about pursuing the philosophical challenges of it, as well as like the technical challenges and the ethical challenges. Mm -hmm. I think they all need to kind of go hand in hand. And it it really, to me, is, is a provocation to challenge some of the like things that we have just accepted as fundamental to our society. Yeah. (laughs) As much as we want to challenge artificial intelligence, you know, we have to, I think, simultaneously continue to challenge our economic paradigm, which is itself a technology, our socioeconomic paradigms, our political paradigms, which are also technologies. So yeah, it's an exciting kind of territory. And to me, it's all, it's all connected. So it's worth questioning all of it and Mm -hmm. embracing the idea that we can, we have the agency to change it or work with it in a different way. Oh, we absolutely do. I mean, yeah. I think what I like the most about even what you've just described now is you're, you're taking technology and expanding the definition out of, I guess, what we would consider as computers. I, I guess right. that's kind of the best way to put it. Cause I mean, technology really is applying knowledge to achieve a goal in a reproducible way. So like yep. the wheel. <laughs> is technology yeah. the printing press mm-hmm. is technology but then so food. is the yeah, te- right food the telephone the internet etc like yep. all of that is technology and i think you know certainly the modern definition of tech is been strictly constrained within computers the internet the web program like all that kind of stuff 
100 percent. but like you know it's funny my mom is uh, (laughs) my mom tells me this sometimes about computers because she's i don't want to say she's a luddite i don't want to put it in such harsh terms but like she's pretty anti-computer like yeah took a long time for her to get a cell phone doesn't have a computer at home like was pretty anti-computer for a while and like she would often tell me like you know humans taught rocks how to think and we put them in a box and then lost our minds which is which is a really like kind of abstract way to think about it but then you think about you know the chips and all i mean all that stuff is rocks it's true but yeah like this is all interconnected like none of this stuff is happening within a vacuum, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think we even see now, you know, just even talking about AI and VR and things like that. These are being applied as layers onto our current reality in ways that kind of make sense and kind of don't. I think there's still, particularly with a lot of the AI stuff, like there's, a, there's infinite possibilities and zero guardrails. Like there's no kind mm-hmm. of real, I don't want to say legislation, but like there's no sort of guardrails or ethics behind some of this stuff i think individual entities are putting ethics behind it Mm -hmm. like behind the work that they do but now the technology exists and it's commonplace enough for you to spoof someone's like entire digital identity you know 100 percent. and it's like well what happens in those cases when that happens you know like it's one thing for to have identity theft but then like someone has also taken your face and your voice and is able to reproduce, you know, things that you could say that sound like you. And it's like, well, it sounds like Black Mirror. It sounds like science fiction, like you said, but it's now. This is all, 100%. these are all things which can happen <laughs> right as this podcast is playing right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even as you described it, I'm working on a story called Beloved, which is based on Toni Morrison's book. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about this after watching an interview of hers where she describes the mother taking her infant's life in order to prevent it from being enslaved. And that story primarily is about artificial intelligence and the ethics of AI from the vantage point of that narrative. Because even as we're talking, what you just described, you know, someone taking your identity and taking your face and using it to say things that you wouldn't say or make a caricature of you. These are things that we already have experienced especially as marginalized people, especially as black folk, when you talk about enslavement, chattel slavery, the identity destruction and reconstruction that had to happen through that process over generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. When you talk about minstrelsy and blackface and things like uh, cultural appropriation, the artificial intelligence, quote unquote, of white supremacy has already kind of rendered this sci-fi experience of being black you know, one of the great ways to think about AI ethics is to look at the the already lived experience of people like indigenous folks and black folks and queer LGBTQIA people. And really, it's a mirror of the potential destructive outcomes of a technology like this that is already, as we know, very much embedded with these biases. And it's also a mirror of some of the potential beauty that can come from that when we have the agency to affect those systems because it's always an evolutionary process there's always going to be a tie that comes in and a tie that goes out technology is always going to be used in nefarious ways for the most part like you said the guardrails are off the cat's out of the bag pandora's box is open and yeah we have to my mom says do your best you know (laughs) i think that's kind of like i think that's kind of like the task at hand is to try to do our best 
with the information that we have. Yeah. But we got to do it for sure. <laughs> and now technoculture, this, the, the definition of technoculture that you have is the framework for something else that you've been constructing called communion. Can you talk right. about that? Yeah. So after I left Snap, after like downloading all of the information from spending four years there and all of the stuff that I was doing on the side in my own research since at least, I think the seeds of communion have already been there, but at least since 2015, I did a show in Oakland called Another World is Possible, Race and Gender in the Age of Transhumanism. And that's, I think, when I started like the seed of, of this framework. But certainly after I left SNAP, I kind of went to a group of thought leaders who are also mutual friends, collaborators with this idea for a platform that was essentially a new kind of like information, internet and manufacturing infrastructure. And after presenting that and sort of taking a step back and thinking about it more deeply, I realized I needed to do a bit more work on this, this idea. So I started breaking it out into different frameworks. So at the base so to speak, information science kind of sets the stage for technoculture, which is the space that we sort of explore and sort of facilitate the production of different technologies through this kind of philosophical shift. And then through that process, communion, I think of as frameworks. So one of them, for example, is a legal ethical framework for alternate realities. So when we talk about things like AI, like deep fakes, like AR, VR, this framework specifically is geared around how do you deal with legal ethical challenges in virtual reality? I've read stories about people getting assaulted, like, you know, assaulted by groups of people in VR mm -hmm. and different types of violence in VR. I've read stories about augmented reality and sort of being able to manipulate people's reality and their, and their perceptions using things like deep fakes. And it's a vast, like uncharted, very complex territory that I don't think a lot of our <laughs> institutionalized like government authorities really have a sense of how to navigate. To me, it is a very much a grassroots effort that needs to take place. So that's one of them. I have several others. One of them is about full systems, health and wellness uh, framework for that. So thinking about like the different dimensions of a person's individual collective and sort of global experience of health. And like, what would it look like to actually make a healthcare infrastructure that takes into account how we relate to technologies, how you use the internet, how you use social media, the food you eat, your cultural context, what your background is, you know, as black people, like understanding how deeply systemic injustice is to our individual health and the health of the planet, kind of connecting all these things together and going like, okay, every person lives essentially in their own reality. And based on that, every single person needs to have a different sort of approach to health that's specific to them, but is also like can be navigated as something that's beneficial for the collective. So, you know, that's another one. There are several others that kind of like are all about different subjects. So communion is just a, a series of, of frameworks that could then be applied to a person's individual life or as a body of research for institutions and things like that. That's kind of the long short of that. <laughs> to me, all of this sounds utterly fascinating. Like <laughs> right around this time last year, I was working at this startup. I was working at this uh, French based startup and they mm. wanted to make a magazine dealing with product communities. We had already published 
we already had two issues that we had done. It was a quarterly magazine called Gravity. And for the third issue, we wanted to do something on Web3. They had the idea come out like, yeah, we want to do something on Web3. This came like directly from the CEO because I think he wanted to like try to pivot the company into Web3 stuff. And people at work were like, nope. If the issue is going to be about Web3, I don't want to write about it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm the editor-in-chief of the magazine. So I was like, okay, fine. We can find some people to write about it. (laughs) This magazine doesn't live or die if you don't decide to do it. It's it's totally okay. And so like, we brought in a Web3 ethicist to serve as like our like guest editor for the magazine. And we put together like a slate of different topics and, and, and articles. And some of it was on the things that you just mentioned on like, what does digital identity theft look like? What does safety right. look like in the metaverse? That sort of thing. And this was like a year ago. Unfortunately, like I got laid off along with our entire team. Mm. And so they completely not only killed the issue, but killed the magazine as well. So Damn. unfortunately, none of that stuff will ever see the light of day. But I do find oh, it all <laughs> super fascinating because these are going to be the realities that we have to contend with yeah. in a few years. And like I've been around on the web since like the 90s. And so I see also the parallels between stuff happening now and stuff that happened back when the internet first started to become a thing. Like the concept of real estate in the metaverse, for example, was very similar to what I remember the million dollar homepage being like. Yeah. Uh, The million dollar homepage was like this website Mm -hmm. where people bought ad space like they could buy like an 88 by 31 pixel web space and put whatever message or something Mm -hmm. on there very similar to i guess like r slash place on reddit like something like that but people paid for it and then like the concept of real estate in the metaverse where people are paying tens of thousands of dollars to have a plot of land quote-unquote land in a metaverse that not only is not interoperable but kind of doesn't exist Really? You know, like yeah, yeah. I literally was in a conference, not last year. This was 20, yes, yeah, 2021. It was a metaverse conference in the metaverse. And someone during one of the talks had bought like an acre of, of land for $10,000. And I'm like, why? What are you going to put there? I don't understand yeah. like what that even means. You know, <laughs> you, right. you buying $10,000 worth of space in the metaverse, like, yeah. I guess you could put a digital house there and show off your NFTs. Like, remember yeah. when NFTs were a thing? Like, it's yeah. like all of this stuff is changing in such a rapid fashion. And then, of course, culture is trying to catch up with how this is all happening. And so it just reminds me of the time back when the internet was first becoming a thing and people were trying to like stake their claim with websites. Companies were really skittish about it. They should even put their business online. It's all, I think, connected in that way. Like I'm seeing those patterns reemerge. Absolutely. There's this quote that like history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, which Mm -hmm. I like a lot. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There was stuff like GeoCities back in the day, which is like very similar to that. And like The Sims, like in the 90s, which is obviously the metaverse. (laughs) A lot of like old games that even I used to play, like Age of Empires was a game that I used to play way back when on the computer where you basically build your own civilization from scratch. There's all of these things that, yeah, we had and that are kind of reemerging in this new environment. And yeah, there's so much of it and it's happening so fast that like, I certainly don't think like, you know, aging, like somewhat archaic, like government institutions can really navigate this territory. But I Mm -hmm. think that the people who have had experience in that space the gamers and creative technologists and creative people, artists do. And I think 
it's a, again a, an opportunity to challenge the institutions that we sort of just accept. I think that like your sort of um, description of like the digital real estate is a great example because like, yeah, it's technically not real, but it is real. And it, it, it starts to like challenge our idea of like what's real mm-hmm. or not, which has pros and cons. But, you know, when you think about a concept like manifest destiny, you know, how the country was conquered and these false deeds that, you know, allow people to take land and property and kind of a fabricated legality behind it. It's pretty fascinating because to me in that context, it's like, okay, there's like a subtle, subtle difference between somebody holding a piece of paper that because of their authority makes them the owner of a thing Mm -hmm. that they can just then take from you. (laughs) And like this other thing, which is digital, which is, you know, it's kind of two sides of the same coin and the physicality of it is sort of, it's an inconvenient, sometimes just an inconvenient kind of truth about the way we experience the world. But yeah, I mean, that's what I get excited about information science about is when you get into like quantum physics and all of the really weird stuff about reality and tangibility. But it's all connected. And I think, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I think people should be kind of cautiously enthusiastic about this whole space, this yeah. whole like kind of new digital environment. And it's always healthy, I think, to just look at history for examples of how things can go right and how things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually taking that approach now as it relates to to social media. Mm-hmm. So, like, we're recording this now at a time when Twitter just became X. Like, right. What, like, I don't know, a couple of days ago or something like that. Right. And people had already been having kind of, you know, reservations about the platform ever mm-hmm. since the new owner took ownership and how things have changed. And so, of course, since then, a number of different Twitter-like clones have sort of popped up or they've made right. themselves known. I'll say, I wouldn't say they just popped up, but like... There's spoutable, there's spill, there's posts, there's Mastodon has been around for a long time. There's blue sky. Instagram came out of left field with threads and like people are are trying to determine like, okay, well, where should I go next? Well, should I go over here to threads? Well, threads does this. Okay. Well, let me go over to blue sky. Well, blue sky Mm -hmm. is like this. And can I get an invite? And it's like, it (laughs) reminds me of 2006, 2007, all over again. One with the invites. That's the first thing. Yeah, um, right. But then two with also when Twitter was around, then there were a number of clones that had popped up that was trying to like take its its market space eventually. Mm-hmm. Like there was Pounce, there was Plurk, there was Jaiku, there was Yammer, there might have been a couple of others. And like within a year's time, most of those didn't exist anymore. They either got acquired yeah. by a company and shut down or they just couldn't hack it essentially, or they've pivoted to another market. Like Plurk is huge in Taiwan. I don't think anybody in the U S really still uses Plurk anymore, but so like I've been cautiously looking at like, Oh, well, do I even want to be on these other platforms? Cause even with Twitter, I don't share a bunch of shit on Twitter now anyway. And I don't think me migrating my presence to another platform is going to necessarily change that like people will say oh i'm on threads and oh this reminds me of how social media used to be and i'm like look if elon musk is the problem mark zuckerberg is not the answer (laughs) like like let's step back here and and put this into some context (laughs) but also just thinking of like i remember the internet when social media was not a thing and it was Mm -hmm. fun it was great 
Yeah. So even now, especially I, yeah. as I get older, I'm like, I don't even want to really have a social media presence. Like as a publisher mm-hmm. of Revision Path, I have to think, oh, well, where do I want the show to be so people can find out about it? So then like I have to have those conversations with myself and my team about like, well, where, what even makes sense? But like personally, like I could give all of this up tomorrow and yeah. be fine. Yeah, I feel that. It's kind of like, yeah, like a gold rush, like speculators, you know, like running to whatever the the hot town is at the time. Yeah. And trying to like stake your claim. So, yeah, it's it's definitely spot on. And that would be a good archive, actually, is actually all of the like platforms that have come and gone and like in relation to all this stuff. I think it would be like a humbling thing to see just like like how many of them have just come and gone. Yeah. And only only a small few rise to the top. Because that's just like the nature of the thing. Yep. <laughs> so as we try to rush from one thing to the next, it's just like it might be better to just take a, a minute to think about what it is we're actually trying to do and get mm-hmm. from these platforms. And yep. like, is there a way to like kind of reclaim that sovereignty and autonomy for ourselves? Right. Um, that's something that I'm really interested in and trying to put into practice more yeah. regularly. It's like, yeah. what's the connection? Because one thing that people have been talking about, and I promise we'll pull this back into talking about you, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but like, yeah. but like one thing with people trying to go to these other platforms is then trying to like recreate the social graph that they had yes. on Twitter. So they're like, yes. Oh, well, if you're going to be here, then I need to be here. And where are my people that are also on this? And it's like, well, you can't take your network with you in that way. There's your offline real world network that always stays with you. And then there's this sort of ersatz cultivated network that's been done through this social media platform that now you have to try to recreate and reconstruct on some other platform that may not even exist within a year's time. Exactly. And, and, And also with the old platform, X, Twitter, whatever it is, if you've had people muted or blocked or things of that nature, now that you've moved to this new platform, those restrictions no longer really apply. Mm-hmm. So they can try to like harass you somewhere else. They can try to right. befriend you somewhere else. And you're like, no, I don't talk to you on Twitter. That means I don't talk to you anywhere. It's so weird. It's so like, it's oh, very my complex. God. It's very <laughs> complex, which yeah. makes me want to just give it all up. I'm like, this is y'all can yeah. have it. It's not it's not that serious. <laughs> Yeah, it gets overwhelming. And um, it's especially challenging, I think, for people who like who find a lot of value in kind of distributing their identity or like having new identities online that they can't have in quote unquote real life. Mm. Because that is something that's very beneficial for a lot of people. I would include myself in a part of that. And especially I think like younger generations and queer folks is like not generally, but a lot of people find a lot of value in being able to assume a different identity and being able to mm-hmm. sort of go to a new town, so to speak, where nobody <laughs> knows your name yeah, and being able to recreate yourself. And there's a lot of challenges behind that with all these new platforms, with legacy platforms that, that fade away. One of the things that I'm really concerned about with Twitter and just like these social platforms in general is something called link rot, link rot. Um, mm-hmm. This idea that like, I think we forget that the internet is very ephemeral and that like, if a server goes down, if people aren't there to maintain it, that like all of your tweets can just go away or all of your, the things you've saved in Google Drive or, you know, whatever other cloud service or all the things you posted on Facebook can just go away one day. There's just this wealth of knowledge on a platform like Twitter that could be lost, not only with the name change, but with 
the infrastructural changes that are there. And it's the equivalent of like burning down the Library of Alexandria Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. all of these connections and conversations and this sort of archive of this moment in time that we will never see again. It's a little like concerning, not a little concerning. It's pretty like it worries me a bit. (laughs) Yo, Um, I did a talk. Oh my God, this was maybe two or three years ago. I did a talk called Content is Subject to Change about this very same thing, about how the internet is not an archive. I know there is the internet archive, but that is a small nonprofit (laughs) that one can't archive the full web because there are certain restrictions around the type of content, about the location of said content. It's not even available in some countries. So like you can't archive the full web, but, Mm -hmm. but also just sort of talking about with the advent of user generated content through social media, web 2.0, et cetera. We are putting so much stuff on the internet without thinking about how it is being stored. If it's being stored, like, news articles yep. like try to find a news article so from stuff. 10 years ago and see if all the images still work or see exactly. if all the links you know link route like you mentioned still works and like it makes it hard for history purposes for archiving etc yeah like the internet is very ephemeral in that aspect yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's like one of the the sort of ambitions of you the platform that i'm working on with ami is like to at least kind of our own in our own way create these tools and, you know, allow people to create their own tools where they can create a living archive of at least themselves, of at least their digital self and try to connect it to their physical self in a way that is ownable, that's, you know, has sovereignty for them and reclaiming all that data, reclaiming all of the information that we've dumped online and making sure that you're able to house it somewhere that you can access and not lose it because all of that stuff is Hugely, hugely important. People's digital stuff is, I don't think we think about this consciously all the time. We kind of take it for granted, but it's not until you lose it, you know, it's not until like the house burns down with all your stuff in it that you're like, oh man, like, right. I probably should have like saved that somewhere or made a copy of it. Yep. You know? Put it yeah. on a physical hard drive or something. Yeah. You know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even, you know, as you mentioned that, that kind of reminded me about sort of one of the restrictions of threads. Like when mm-hmm. people were sort of th- looking at different platforms to jump to and sort of the the notion you mentioned about people being able to assume different identities on different platforms. Like there's who you are maybe in the real world, but then on the Internet, you can be a different person or a different identity or something like that. Right. And I know there were people like adult industry professionals, you know, sex workers, porn stars, et cetera, who said that they had joined threads and like threads because it's Instagram and Instagram is owned by Facebook, like now links them their stage name to their like real person identity. And that if you try to delete threads, then now you delete Instagram. So now it's like tying together these things you didn't ask to be tied together, but because you've opted into the platform yeah. and you know, no one reads the the long ass end user licensing nope. agreement or the, or the terms <laughs> yeah. of service. But now that you've opted into right. it, it's like, this is what you signed on for. Yeah. And you can't go back. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's super like manipulative, I think in, in nefarious and not by accident. And yeah, that's in and of itself a huge conversation about sex work online and sort of platform and surveillance capitalism. And I have friends who are sex workers. I kind of consider myself to be, in that territory, at least online anyway. I have an OnlyFans. It's a huge issue, not only the deplatforming, the silencing, all of that stuff, 
which I think is is like hugely messed up because in a lot of ways these platforms you know make a lot of money <laughs> from you know the revenue that's generated by these users, these mm-hmm. you know citizens of their platforms, while at the same time silencing them, even sometimes encouraging violence and disrespect towards them. There aren't a lot of like really safe, equitable spaces for sex workers and and marginalized folks online. And I'm excited about seeing more of that. I think like the metaverse, not Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, but the metaverse more broadly Mm -hmm. (laughs) and gaming and kind of world building environments is at least one space that I feel excited about the opportunity for those things to open up more. And just people like making their own platforms, I think like back to the era of blogging, you know, like hosting your own platform yourself. I think that's exciting. And I think we'll probably see people do more of that for sure. Because I think people are getting like really fatigued with all of this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like we could have a whole other podcast episode (laughs) just about what we talked about with like the, the advent of technology through porn and sex work like a lot of technological innovation especially like when we talked about synthetic media and things like that unfortunately it's come because of that that innovation has spurred technological innovation but we've spent a lot of time talking about this i want to make sure that this interview is (laughs) also about you so let's let's switch gears here learn more about you now you're originally from cleveland is that right that's right yeah i was born and raised there i lived there until I was about 13, and then I moved around in the South quite a bit. I went to high school in Douglasville, Georgia for about a year. I went to high school in Montgomery, Alabama. That's actually where I graduated high school. And I, yeah, I ended up going to SCAD in Savannah for two years. I'm a college dropout. I love my time at SCAD, especially the people and just like that city I think is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a 3D animation major and an illustration minor. I thought I wanted to work at Pixar at that time. That was my first like kind of venture into the 3D space, um, at least using computers. And I think it kind of stuck with me, even though I hadn't like revisited it until more recently. A lot of the ideas, understanding the potential of it definitely stuck with me. I've always been interested in science and technology. I would have just as soon went into, you know, robotics or something. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. I wanted to be a paleontologist. Mm. I had all these kind of aspirations. I think that's true for a lot of creative people. I think something that I realize about kind of the world we we live in is the unfortunate sort of reality of this kind of reductionist approach to so many things where you have to like choose one thing to be when that's not really how the world works. <laughs> and that was definitely like a big part of like starting the studio was that like using it as a vehicle to do whatever I wanted to do. And I think people feel inspired to like rally around that so yeah that's been the journey with that now after scad you i saw that you kind of worked for a while as a designer you worked for yeah for radio one for a while but then you also started collaborating with yeah. other creatives you started this collective called the big up tell me about that because it sounds like that's kind of been the the basis for what you do now through the young never sleep yeah 100 percent. at scad i met a group of really like dynamic people Brittany Bosco being one of them, Alex Goose, Danny Swain, Lloyd Harold, a number of other amazing people. We all kind of went our separate ways, but stayed in touch. And then after going back to Montgomery for a little bit, I went back to Atlanta 
And at that time, I was just doing just like freelance graphic design, doing like club flyers and making people's like album artwork. Fadia Cater was one of the people who... Oh, yeah, I know Fadia. Yeah, she's awesome. She's one of the people who like kind of helped jumpstart my design career. And yeah, I started working with Brittany and Alex Goose and Danny really closely. I've done album artwork for Danny. I did some vocals on one of his albums. I've done album artwork for Brittany and like her shows, kind of posters and things like that. So yeah, we started the collective, The Big Up, and it was essentially like part label, part creative agency, where we just wanted to do everything in-house. We made the music, we made the art for the music, we did the set design, we did everything. And that was definitely like one of the things that I think transitioned me from being an artist to being like more of a design thinker and certainly like a systems design thinker. Mm-hmm. And then I, yeah, I worked for Hot 107.9 for a little while. I actually lived there for, for a short period of time. I had an experience with like houselessness for like a brief period of time. And I actually like lived at Hot 107.9 making designs for like birthday bash. <laughs> and I would just like stay in the studio when everybody left and just mm-hmm. like sleep there. <laughs> I'd always been interested in computers. Like I had a computer at home, it was really old and you now I'd play games on it and do stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing. But yeah, at Hot 107.9, you know, just being there for that time, I was like obsessively going through blogs. You know, this is the time of LimeWire and all of that stuff and just torrents and downloading just 20 albums at a time and just <laughs> listening to like, you know, Japanese prog rock and just cosmic jazz and like all this crazy stuff from everywhere. It was incredible. And I remember I saved like all this music on a hard drive and I ended up like losing that hard drive. <laughs> so I think maybe that might be like some trauma that made me want to archive. <laughs> there might be some trauma there. I'm like, I never want to lose anything ever again. Yeah. <laughs> like, Listen, I have a hard drive here now at the house. that has got a ton of music on it that I can't access for some reason. And I'm uh, like, one day I'm going to crack yeah. it and get all my music back that's on there. So I feel you there. The world needs that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. The big up. Yeah, that was definitely like one of the things that was kind of like seeded the young never sleep and what was possible through that. You know, it's been a journey. I still am connected to Bosco. The last time we worked together was a, a project with Spectacles. It was one of my favorite projects I've, I've worked on there, actually. And one of the things that kind of set the trajectory for where I'm headed now with my work. We did a her single July 4th or 4th of July we created this video, which was essentially a concept for a music video game in mixed reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really, really cool project where we like used the AR lenses from a lot of like lens studio creators. And I made toys based on the characters in the video and made like several AR experiences. A really great like 360 project. So um, it's really cool. So yeah. 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 Brittany was actually on our 2019 honoree list for 28 days of the oh, web nice. yeah we have a yeah. we have like a sister site where for black history month for february we profile 14 men 14 women that are doing like really interesting great digital stuff online whether that's design tech etc that's something okay. we've done for the the past 10 years i've been debating on stopping it this is my first time saying mm. this publicly by the way but because I've done it for 10 years. I'm like, you know, 10 is a good round number. I don't know if I want to do it again for next year, mainly because, and I didn't think this would be the case at it, but I don't know. Maybe it's kind of tied into our conversation. Some people just don't want that presence online anymore. 
So yeah, they're contacting yeah. us and being like, yeah, can you take down the profile mm-hmm. that you did? Like, they thanked me when it was up. But then now that it's up, they're like, yeah, can you get rid of that? Because mm-hmm. okay. I'm yeah. like, yeah. So I don't know. I'm I'm still All right. I'm on the fence about doing it again for 2024. But we've done it since 2014. So it's been 10 years. So I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe we will. Maybe we won't. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> I feel that. It's like that. Things change. Yeah. Now, when you look back at, you know, some of the big places you've worked, like you mentioned Snap, you were there for four Mm -hmm. years in L.A. You've also been at Cartoon Network for four years Mm -hmm. here in Atlanta. When you look back, like collectively at those experiences, what do you still carry with you from there? My experience working at those places for me was like my school. I apply myself in these careers as me, like learning by doing at Cartoon Network. I got a deep appreciation for how to apply artistic thinking to design. There's a fine line between art and design and sometimes it's non-existent. And I think at Cartoon Network, I got an appreciation for how art and design can be the same thing. I got an appreciation for systems thinking again. I tell people we essentially did everything except make the cartoons. So we were doing, you know, interstitials, making commercials, print ads, web ads. We did immersive experiences for Comic-Con. You know, we built a booth. I helped make a gigantic inflatable obstacle course in the Bahamas. Mm. It's like so much work that got done making premiums, you know, clothes and all kinds of things. Working for Cartoon and Adult Swim. You get a real sense of like all of the touch points that have to happen in order to make a project successful or a product like launch successful. So I got a real sense of that there. And I have to thank people like Jacob Escobedo who got me the job and for him believing in me, not having a degree, just seeing my work. He literally just asked me to bring in a sketchbook. He looked through my sketchbook and hired me <laughs> based on that. Wow. Um, which I, you know, I, I really appreciate him for that. And then Candace House, I have to say, is someone who like sharpened my eye for detail and quality. She, as an art director, is, you know, exceptional and is someone who I think just is exemplary of the Cartoon Network brand. So I got that there. And then I left after four years. I graduated, so to speak. (laughs) And then I freelanced for a while with that knowledge, working on, you know, projects for Dolby and HBO and several other kind of higher profile brands, which it's great for me, I think, to go back and forth to have like this kind of independent you know, self-starting thing, but also to be, you know, within the institution, because I think you just learn different things from those experiences. And then after a while, I got the job at Snap through, by working with Larissa Haggio, who's a fashion designer in LA, Andrew McPhee, her partner, got me introduced to Snap and the Spectacles team. And at Spectacles, I was there for four years, another kind of graduate (laughs) situation. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the big takeaway there was how hard it is to make tech. I got a much deeper appreciation for the things that I think a lot of us take for granted. When our laptop is on the fritz or the GPS doesn't work perfectly, it's easy for us to complain, but I got a real reverence for like the complexity and challenge of trying to make a piece of hardware and a piece of software and also trying to like get it out into the market in a way that people will embrace it. It's a very, very hard, complex thing to do. And I was there through four launches, four product launches, Mm -hmm. doing 
a little bit of everything with the brand and even like influencing the product as well. I got a lot of experience with working with product teams and trying to, you know, set the vision and design a product. So I think those two like kind of big pillars, Cartoon Network and Snap Spectacles together, I think, you know, alongside my independent work really set the stage for where I'm headed in the future. I love that you kind of referred to both of those experiences as like graduation. For uh, sure. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah. you know, jobs do, you know, when we're working at these places, they do teach us things. It's not mm-hmm. just, you know, kind of a, a particular tenure of employment. Like some of the work that you did, just looking back, like with Cartoon Network and Adult Swim, when I said before that I've seen your work before I've seen your work before I knew it was you, the Adult Swim singles covers and oh, stuff. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, some of the best design I've seen. And I'm like, this is coming out of Atlanta. Of Thank course. You, man. And I mean, during a time when honestly, you know, and I would probably still maybe say this even now, people don't look at Atlanta as a design city. Yeah, 100%. You know, yeah, like, I mean, I think certainly they look at us for entertainment. They look at just the creativity that comes here out of like the music scene. But, you know, yeah. I can tell you from doing a show for 10 years, people do not look at Atlanta for design at all. Yeah, you know, you're right. Tech, yeah. they, they've started to because of the startup scene, but like design, yeah. pfft, please. Right. <laughs> do not get me started about some of the design arguments and conversations I've had locally trying to yeah, trying to help put such a shame. Atlanta <laughs> on the map about stuff. It's just like, man, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a shame. It such, such, does such a disservice to the culture to not acknowledge that a lot of us have been doing it for a long time. And like, I appreciate that you continue to advocate. Um, I think it's true. I'm passionate and committed to Atlanta. I'm not like an Atlanta loyalist. Like I really, having mm-hmm. lived other places, like other places are really amazing as well. But I think it definitely does a disservice to the city to not acknowledge the design and art and tech and entertainment and all of those things that are very much present here. What I really see is just like an opportunity actually to continue to foster the kinds of platforms that need to be unique to this city. I think that's one thing that we're tasked with or anyone who's creative here is like, if you're a person who's committed to this city and committed to seeing it continue to improve, the reference points don't need to be anywhere else but this place and Mm -hmm. the people who live here Mm -hmm. and that's it it has its own thing and like (laughs) that's all it it kind of needs to be absolutely yeah what do you think it means to be a creative person today i think it's like a common thread for me to see creativity as a way of self-affirmation on a really really deep level i think it's a way to self-reflect and to obviously connect with other people. I think from that place, when I think about something like a term that's maybe on the verge of being overused now, this term world building, even before coming across the word, I think that our task of world building as creative people, whether that is world building through writing a novel or doing photo shoots or making video games or, you know, creating a space where people can come and enjoy themselves or receive healing. I think world building as a practice is kind of our premier task. The way that I sort of contextualize this for people is like me as a young black queer kid growing up, the world builders that I knew were my grandmother and my mother and my aunt, 
who, when I stepped into their homes, I was confronted by all of this beauty, uh, black intellect. You know, my grandmother had libraries about black people, about Africa and, you know, black dolls and the walls were painted colorfully and bright. And, you know, my aunt's home is just, you step into this world that's like self-affirming and it really just like nourishes you and it builds you back up to step out into the world into a world that is not always so so affirming. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think that's the premier, I think, task is to continue to build that world and to do it together and bring it all together because we have the power to shape the trajectory of, you know, the world we live in and change the outcomes just by making it, you know, by making it real. And I'm excited about that. And I think the depth of that, of that pursuit means challenging institutions continuously, challenging how education is disseminated, challenging how social systems are disseminated, challenging authority kind of at all levels. <laughs> yeah. And, and just like affirming ourselves and even making something a little bit better is, I think, a, a win, a victory. In recent years, what would you say is like one of the biggest lessons that you've learned about yourself? I think it's been humbling and like exciting to put my own creative pursuit within the context of like this sort of like deep time, being conscious of that. It's opened a huge window for me as a part of like my research. Like I recognize that, oh, oh wait, like the sort of visual and sonic, you know, and conceptual themes that I am tapping into through my work all exist on a continuum and in a network of like all these other, you know, minds and ideas and, and sort of questions. And once I step back and sort of like look at that in that context, you start to get like a different picture, like a different picture emerges of like, okay, we're all having like this collective conversation. I think like touching on this idea of artificial intelligence again is like this sort of collective consciousness that's present through history, through this deep time of like nature and all these things. Tracing that thread, it's sort of simultaneously reduced who I am and like also expanded it in ways that are just like reinvigorating. <laughs> and it's pretty profound to me. It's felt profound. Now, this might be a, a big question, like kind of given, I think, the general kind of trajectory of where your work is. But yeah, like what kind of work do you want to be doing within the next five years? Like what's the next chapter look like for you? It's a little tricky because there's kind of a duality. Like I want to like be more accepting of like where I am, whatever that circumstances and in many ways, just like live small, like live in a more small way mm -hmm. on like a personal level. But at the same time, I want to show people what's like really tangibly possible through the practice of world building and self kind of recreation. We're living in this sci-fi world and, you know, we watch really entertaining shows, you know, Black Mirror and Marvel movies or whatever, <laughs> all these things that are, are really cool, like narratives. But I think I want to like kind of take storytelling a little further. I really want to make tangible extensions of myself or of other people or worlds that people can really step into make that collectively with other creatives. I think the practice of world building, I take it really seriously because I know that a world has been built for me to live in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always use like Frank Ocean's line, uh, living in an idea from another man's mind. 
I think that perfectly encapsulates like our current circumstance that somebody had an idea that one person of a color was less than another person. And now we live inside that idea. And a lot of the things that we now have to contend with as social institutions were just somebody's idea that they wrote in a book, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. just, you know, proselytized to their group of friends. And then it became a global institution that has industries and infrastructure and military might to support it. And that to me is like fascinating that 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 can happen from just the seed of an idea. So the creative pursuit, I think, is not to be underestimated that you as a person who has a concept or has an idea, you couldn't begin to comprehend what that could look like in 10 years, 100 years, 1000 years. And I kind of want to show people that that like, you know, when we say another world is possible, that like, no, actually, yeah, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like the world, like for real. (laughs) And that it is, you know, and it's not only possible, but it's probable and practical as well. That's what I want to do. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, and I know we've we've covered a lot, but just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work? Where can they follow you online? So you can go to at the young never sleep on Instagram or the young never sleep dot org online. Um, my Instagram has a link tree with a bunch of other links as well that people can jump into. Those are the best places to find me. All right. Sounds good. Brandon Collins. Wow. Wow. This conversation was <laughs> so good. I think one, it was just, I mean, first of all, thank you again for, for coming on the show, thank but you. like yeah. the stuff that you're covering are the things that I think as designers, as creatives, as technologists, we need to be thinking about because we're probably best equipped to actually help to shape that future of what things can look like through 100%. technology, through visuals, et cetera. And I just thank you mm-hmm. for helping to put these ideas out there. Thank you for the work that you're doing. You know, hopefully one day we'll have rum together at El yeah, Malo for sure. For sure. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Big, big thanks to Brandon Collins. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Brandon and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts BFA Design and BFA Advertising Programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, let us know. We're on social media. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter slash X. Just search for Revision Path. It's all one word. You could follow us on Spotify. We're on Amazon Music. Of course, you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to see those. Or you could leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.